Hello, hello. Welcome to our podcast episode today. I'm Daniela. I'm here with co-host Jamie. And we've got a special guest for you today, Tara. Welcome, Tara. Thank you, Daniela. Yeah, yeah, please. um, If you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself, let folks know who you are, a little bit about you and what you want to talk about today. Go for it. Stage is yours. Okay, well, my name is Tara Campejos. Um, I live on the big island in Hawaii. I'm a midwife and um, Lomi Lomi practitioner. I'm a mother of two children who were born at home. I also was born at home uh, many years ago. And um, I consider myself a birth activist and advocate as well as a midwife. Awesome. Awesome. And what, um, what brought you into, um, what kind of led you towards midwifery, if we may ask? Um, sure, of course. So, um, like I said, I was born at home in the 70s in Chicago. Um, I was a breech baby. So um, that's my legacy, you know, and I feel like um, very privileged that my mother chose to have a home birth a lot of the women that I work with now in contemporary times you know they have to like jump this hurdle and be the the person in their lineage to take the the courage to break from the tradition of having hospital birth or medical um, medically managed birth and that is a courageous and beautiful and wonderful thing to watch them do but it can be really hard and so I feel like I had a modicum of privilege that my mother was the one who took that uh, leap of faith and created um, a new legacy which actually if you think about it there was probably only two generations of our lineage that was born in hospitals but she was still the one to break that and to go back to home birth so being born at home myself when i um, got pregnant for the first time there was no question in my mind that i was going to give birth at home and i did and then i had another so after my first birth actually i mean giving birth to my daughter at home was a deeply spiritually empowering experience for me. It totally transformed me. I mean, it transformed me into a mother. And I felt when I was in labor with my daughter, you know, I felt like the divine spirit moving through me. It was a spiritual experience for me. And I felt so powerful and so proud of myself and so connected to my child. It was just a beautiful, it was the most beautiful experience I'd ever had in my life. Um, And then it was really hard for me to listen to sort of the narrative in the culture when I would hear other women talking about giving birth and they would just say it was the worst it was awful and they would be giving each other advice like just get the epidural it's better to just get it from the beginning and you know schedule your c-section and you know it's just the worst and I felt like um shocked because it was so different from the way I had experienced birth 
And I was a massage therapist at the time. And so it kind of just worked out that I started focusing on pregnancy massage, working on pregnant women a lot. And uh, by the time my daughter was a year old, I had decided I wanted to be a doula. So I talked to my midwife. Her name is uh, Medra Kanoi Onapua. She's 81 now, and she's been um, serving women since probably around the time I was born. So she was my midwife, and I told her I wanted to be a doula. And she said, um, well, if you organize the class, I'll teach it. So this was back when like being a doula was kind of a new thing. This was in 2005. My first daughter was born in 2002. So I organized this really awesome doula training. We took like six months and we met twice a month and Medra would teach every other class and then we'd have a guest teacher. So we'd have a doula or a naturopath or a midwife or a lactation consultant every other class. And um, it was this really wonderful experience and we had readings um, and I ended up being pregnant by the time that class ended with my second child who um, I ended up having an unassisted birth with that child and it was really cool because while I was in labor going through the stages and the progression of the experience, I was experiencing it like with two minds. Like part of me was experiencing it as the birthing woman, driven by spirit, you know, um, feeling, feeling the cues of my body and getting ready to bring my child into the world. And there was another little part of my mind that was experiencing it as the doula, and going like, oh, look at that. I'm making figure eights with my hips. I must be nearing transition. Oh, listen to those words that just came out of my mouth. That sounds like self-doubt. That must be transition. <laughs> I'm about to have my baby. And um, it was a very, very quick labor, that second one. And my husband caught both my babies. And when, he, when my second one, my son, came out, I was on my hands and knees and I couldn't see him. And my husband said, well, his head's out, but he's blue. And I was there on my hands and knees with my baby's head out. And I said, that's okay. Blue's okay. We just don't want him to be white. And he said, well, he's not breathing. And I said, that's okay. He can't breathe until his torso comes out because of the compression. So that was just a fascinating experience to give birth in that way and um after about a year of working as a doula I realized that I wanted to be a midwife because I wanted to understand the physiological process of birth more deeply because I would be at births like in the hospital and the doctor or the nurse would be saying something to the mother stating it as fact like well, we have to do this procedure because otherwise your baby will die. And I would be like, wait, is that true? How do I know if that's true? So I just found myself like hungry for deeper and more information and really wanting to understand everything that was going on inside the woman's body as she gave birth. 
And so I asked Medra if I could apprentice with her. And she said yes. And I started going to births with her. And I ended up spending six years going to births with her, which has been, people have scoffed at me and said, that's like such a long time. You know, I mean, there's people who decide they want to be a midwife, sign up for an accredited program and get all their births. And like within two to three years, they're a CPM. But I spent six years just in pure apprenticeship. And then um, that was around like 2011, 2012. And at that time in Hawaii, there was an influx of CPMs who moved here and started talking about licensure and regulation. And um, I was at a point where I had learned so much from hands-on experience and from the example of my mentor, but I wanted a more solid didactic education along with that. So I was ready to go to school. So I looked around, I researched all the programs, and I wanted to go to a MEEK accredited school because I was aware that becoming a CPM was, was going to give some modicum of like establishment and safety as things were changing politically. But when I researched the schools, I really couldn't find a MEEK accredited school that was going to work for me. And I ended up finding an amazing school that was just like organized, great communication. They were, they were teaching all the things that I wanted to learn. And it was a price I could afford, but it was an independent, unaccredited school. And that school is called the Matrona. And so I attended that school in um, 2013. And after I was done with that. So in 2014 was when I would say that my personal practice as a midwife began, although I still would work with Medra. And I think it's really interesting because um, as the CPM has become recognized in more and more states as a pathway to licensure, it's really changed. And some of the things that I've seen that have changed over the years are, first of all, the number of births someone is expected to have attended in order to be considered competent keeps going up and up and up and up. And so I think that that is a way of controlling people and um, basically oppressing people, honestly. And it changes the culture of midwifery because it drives students to be in this place where they need to like accumulate all these births and they have to like go to high volume birth centers where birth is just very different and they're in competition with each other to get to the births and you know it really changes the energy um another thing that i've seen change over the years is um Well, I forget what I was going to say. I was kind of starting in on that before I started talking about the number of births. Yeah. But I was sitting. Yeah, I think right. something that has changed is that is the, even the type of education people are receiving. It's a lot of, um, they're, they're, because everything is rushed and pushed through and like making these mile markers, you know, then, then the 
intuitiveness and the spirituality piece kind of tends to get lost because it's all, um, it's, it's so linked to proven numbers and statistics as opposed to um, individuality <clears throat> and, and the person in front of you. Right. I mean, that's, that is definitely something that I've seen with, you know, like the CPM started back in the day with the farm midwives and Elizabeth Davis and women who just wanted to not be subject, subjected to the abuse that was happening in the hospital with childbirth. And so they started doing it at home and helping each other out. And they started looking around and finding resources and reading and learning and consulting with the grand midwives and consulting with the indigenous midwives and educating themselves. And it was this really grassroots movement. And the more and more um, people try to get legitimized by governments and get licenses, what ends up happening is the practice of midwifery, like you were saying, Jamie, is becoming more and more medical. It's more and more about these very specific techniques that are basically medical techniques. And that's fine. I mean, I enjoy learning those, those skills. But the thing is, that's not the only way to be a midwife. Okay, and so that leads me to the two concepts that I think are really important and need to be discussed more when we're talking about birth and midwifery and the government regulation and licensure of those things. I don't hear these two things being spoken about very much when this conversation comes up and I keep seeing the conversation fall into a rut because it's based on assumptions. And so the two concepts that I'm passionate about communicating about right now are the idea of autonomy and body sovereignty, first of all, and second of all, the concept of safety. So I'd like to talk about the idea of body sovereignty and autonomy first, if you guys are okay with that. Absolutely. And you are on the right show. We love these topics. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's dive in. So ready. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, the, so at first, I just want to talk about like autonomy in your choice of what to do with your body. And everybody you know, kind of toots that horn and says, oh yeah, informed choice, you know, body autonomy for sure. Everyone should have that. But then, and a lot of times, you know, you hear feminists talking about that, but then they're the same people who are trotting out this whole concept of like, well, we need licensure for midwives because we need to make sure it's safe. Um, so my thing that I'm going to say over and over is every single person, every human being deserves the same right to make their own choices about their body. Every single person. So that means, you know, the person who has no money, the person who's using drugs, the person who's been in and out of jail, the pregnant woman who is only 15 years old she deserves to have the exact same amount of body sovereignty 
as the woman with the PhD who's got a 401k, who's got a great job and respect in her community and an established partner and owns a beautiful home. It doesn't matter. Every single human being on this planet deserves to make their own choices in their own way about their body. And I say in their own way because it's not just the making of the choice. Because a lot of times when we're having this conversation about, and it's not just about home birth versus hospital birth, right? It's really truly about who a person wants to have with them when they give birth. And when we're having this conversation, there's always this response, which is like, yeah, of course, people can make their own choice. Everybody has the right to make their own choice. And we're just making sure that the people that they're going to choose from are, you know, educated and competent and safe. But the point is that by doing that, you're going to choose the people, the government, when I say you, I mean, the government is going to choose the people it approves of and says that they're safe or they're competent or they're legal. And there's going to be people who are left off that list. And what if someone wants to choose that person? Because you know why? Because the process of making a choice is also autonomous and also should be sovereign. So you can't say, yes, I believe in everybody's right to make a choice based on the evidence. Because in our white dominant culture, there's a lot of value placed on evidence, on using logic to make a choice. Great. That's great. If that's how you make your choices and that's what works for you, then please, I'm glad there's so much evidence out there. Wonderful. I'm definitely not going to say you shouldn't make an evidence-based choice, but there are a lot of people who, they may read all the evidence and they may still go around and interview all the midwives and all the available birth attendants and choose someone who is not licensed or who the evidence doesn't show to be the best choice because they may make their choices in a completely different way and they have the right to do that that is my stance that i'm not hearing people acknowledge if someone makes their choices based on hey i met this person and i looked in their eyes and i felt the way my body felt when i was around them and this is the person that i want well that is absolutely a respectable way to make a choice. And if they make their choice based on this is who, you know, everyone in my community chooses and this is who they like. And this is the way that we do it because I come from a very traditional culture and, and we all do it this way. And I want to keep doing it because it's important that I follow the tradition that's giving them something. That's the way they make their choice. That should be respected. So it's not just the choice that people make, but it's the way they make their choices that needs to be respected. And then that leads me to the other concept, which is safety. You know, so often when the conversation of birth and, and home birth and midwifery and licensure comes up, and hospitals, there's this assumption in the room that everyone 
is viewing safety from the same cultural viewpoint. And that's just not true. I mean, in our dominant Western culture, safety, I think most people see safety as, as technology that stops death, right? So like seatbelts, um, an AED machine that's used when someone's having a heart attack, surgery, pharmaceuticals. These are like technological developments that come between people and death. And I think that that kind of is the bottom line of what a lot of people think of safety as meaning. Um, but I'm here to say safety can mean different things for different people. And I really want to talk about, um, right now I'm taking a class from a doula and student midwife in Louisiana named Divine. And the class is called Grandmother's Hands. And it's about um, the way that Black Southern midwives used herbs to heal people and to help with birth. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in the class is um, the history of Black people in America in relationship to the medical system. The medical industrial complex. I'm just going to go ahead and call it what it is. So, you know, for hundreds of years, African people were enslaved in America and they weren't given medical care. Even after slavery ended, the hospitals, they weren't allowed to go into the hospitals and the doctors were not for them. They didn't serve them. And so they were attended in birth by black women from their community who learned midwifery from other black women in their community. It was an oral tradition. It was handed down from practitioner to practitioner. It was, um, there was a spiritual aspect to it. There was a, a feeling of being called on a spiritual level by God to do this work. Um, and these were the midwives that were serving the Black population in America for hundreds of years. Meanwhile, in, in the world of medicine and hospitals and doctors and nurses, for, for descendants of African enslaved people, they weren't available to help them when they were sick. But you know what? When they wanted them, they, and they brought them into their medical institutions, it was to experiment on them. There's the Tuskegee experiment where uh, black men were infected with syphilis so that doctors could watch and see how it affected them. There were um, women who had abortions performed on them without anesthetic. There was the woman whose genetic tissue was taken and experiments were done for decades. And we had a lax. Yep. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. So if a descendant of an African enslaved person doesn't feel like the hospital is the safest place for them, I mean, yeah, 
I get that. <laughs> and she should not have to give birth in the hospital. And the thing is, back to what you were saying, Jamie, okay, this is not just about hospital birth versus home birth, right? This is about the fact that home birth is being forced to become more and more medicalized. And by putting regulations on it and requiring midwives to become licensed, okay, in order to require a license, you have to make some kind of guidelines of what that person has to do to get the license. So when you create guidelines that are um, limiting access for people of color, for people with low income, for people with families to support, and you're making licensure basically only accessible to um, privileged people with a certain amount of wealth and usually uh, white people. And then you're loading on more and more medical skills being required. Then what you end up having is home birth that is basically the same as hospital birth just outside of the hospital. So it's not really an alternative. So then if you go back and you look at the example of the descendant of an enslaved African person who is carrying that cellular trauma, who's carrying that culture, who's carrying, you know, that family lineage and the very real understanding that the white dominant American culture of medicine is not necessarily a safe place for her. And now you're making her alternatives legal, illegal. Because, you know, the way midwifery was handed down from generation to generation in those communities, those black communities in the South, is really not too different from how I saw midwifery was being handed down from generation to generation here in Hawaii as recently as the 90s and 2000s. So there's a quote that I came across literally yesterday that, you know, is reflective of what you're sharing here. And it's by a woman midwife named Rebecca Polston. And it, she says, increase access to racist systems do not equal better care. Right. So one of these common themes that's mentioned in when people are pushing for mandatory licensure is, well, this is increasing access to midwifery care. And there's a lot to be said about that. But in short, that is often an illusion, um, especially when you're actually limiting the amount of midwives that are available. Um, but what are you increasing access to? sometimes too. And if we're talking about homogenized uh, midwifery and midwifery that's becoming increasingly medicalized, then again, what are we increasing access to? And um, when it comes to, you know, the granny midwives, the, the, the midwives in the South, historically, I'm getting a an uncomfortable deja vu because you know it was like okay the midwives are there and then they had to register and then they had to take classes with the doctor in order to register and be licensed and then eventually they just got rid of them and said no actually you just can't practice you're just outlawed straight up outlawed and you know I'm not sure necessarily that this is where things would go when it's like uh, with licensure but in some ways they are kind of outlawing 
particular types of midwives. Um, so it is getting rid of midwifery at its roots, what it's always really been about, and morphing it into a medicalized version, which stumps me because I'm like, we already got CNMs. There's already medicalized midwives. What, what you know? <laughs> well, and a lot of women are choosing to step out of that paradigm, and that's why they were choosing, you know, okay, well, midwife and nurse midwife, and that's sort of like most mostly hospital based and then people were choosing home to kind of move away from that system and now the long arm of the medical um, field is um, creeping into your bedroom and requiring um, your midwife to to do or not do certain things which then again the, the scope of choice becomes more and more narrow and even when it comes to evidence based you can't actually base things on evidence if you don't have full scope of practice. So, you know, how many, how much research can you really do about anyone over 42 weeks nowadays? Because um, in the, in the practice of licensed and, and registered um, midwives, you know, um, or um, even obstetrical births, there is very little evidence to build off of because you are not allowed to um, do certain things based on um, some larger picture versus based on, again, the person that is um, sitting in front of you and their personal history or um, their health and wellness as individuals. So um, evidence-based birth is only based on the evidence within which we are allowed to, um, to the parameters are allowed to, we're allowed to work within. And what choices we're allowed to offer our clients, whether they're not really like the full scope of choice. And so, and that's what's happening to our education. It's getting more and more and more narrow. And it's, um, and, and even in the world of obstetrics, you know, obstetrical doctors don't learn breach deliveries anymore. And they're not even interested in learning them um, because they are essentially becoming specialized surgeons. Um, and um, that's the go-to as opposed to having a diverse set of skills. It's become, everything is becoming more and more specialized, specialized, narrow, narrow, narrow. And so um, how do you know what the evidence is when you don't give the opportunity to collect the data? Right. And, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go ahead and be the person to stand up and say, like, I totally agree 100% with what you're saying. And also I want to add to that, that every birthing person has the right to not go with the evidence. You know, I feel like there's totally this agree. Like yeah. cultural, um, this, uh, what, what is the word? Like, it's, it, I mean, it's colonization. It's this cultural expectation that like every single person's like, oh, okay, well, the evidence says that. So, you know, I I'm definitely want to go with that 100%. And I'm just saying that if a person doesn't want to, they should not have to. And well, that's, that's kind of looping back around to how we make choices. Like you may make mm -hmm. a choice not based on evidence, but on, on your own personal experience or your own intuition. And intuition cannot be measured or scientifically quantified. And therefore we're stepping into this paradigm of industrialized um, like living 
that doesn't honor that spirituality or that intuition. If, if it doesn't go with the evidence, then it must not be valid. And, um, and I think that it is important to protect that aspect of making choices, that it doesn't have to be based on some statistic or whatnot. It can be based on just how you feel. Right. Right. I, exactly. And we've, been, we've been told the colonizer's story is that our feeling, our intuition, our dreams are not in fact evidence that is not valid, uh, a valid source of knowledge. Um, but it is, right? So that's our that gods, who we pray to, our languages, our, our belief systems, none of that is valid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Only only white western dominant culture is valid and that is like you just said daniela that's colonization so birth is being totally colonized and you know i thank you for bringing that quote into the conversation and also for saying i was experiencing that same what you called uncomfortable deja vu when i was reading about the black southern midwives and how in the beginning they were serving their communities they were called to do this work by God and by their communities, and they were serving their communities with good result, by the way. And in the 1920s, you know, the medical culture came in and was like, oh, you can't do what you've already been doing for your people for all this time unless I approve of you and I give you the stamp. And then, like you said, they slowly, slowly made them illegal. And I have watched that exact process go down here in Hawaii, really. And well, in the access to education, you're going to require this education, but there's no access to these educational requirements, you know, that, that whole stripping away. So if you are, um, if it used to be that if you had that calling and then, then a midwife would take you under their wing and you would work with them. And now the possibility of doing those things is, you know, you have to be able to afford school and you have to be able to afford to go to school. And then you have to pay fees every year to qualify for all these different things. So you can't just serve the people, you're now serving the system as well. Very, very well said. And also I'd like to just throw in there that in Hawaii right now, I'm pretty sure we must have the highest fee for a midwifery license in the entire country. And that alone is prohibitive. Only, you know, not every midwife, even if you qualify for, for licensure, can afford to pay that super high licensing fee. And so what it does, or even if you can't afford to pay it, it ends up driving the cost of midwifery services up. So once again, we've got all these voices that are saying, uh, we're increasing access. The whole reason we want licensure is so that we can increase access to more people. But then the cost of a midwife ends up being driven up by the process because also she's got to pay off that expensive schooling and she's got to pay for that expensive license. And now in order to practice and what it does, it changes the cost, it changes the access and it changes the culture of it. And it becomes, you know, this professionalized thing. And then there's this thing in the bill that says, well, okay, you can attend births as long as you don't call yourself a midwife or, or no money exchanges hands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is just such colonization too. 
because it's like, well, you can either be a professional who has an office and a license and who brings all these medical skills and devices to the birth, who's regulated, who's basically giving a hospital birth at home, like we talked about, or yeah, okay, we'll, oh yeah, we want to act like we're honoring traditional practices Mm -hmm. and we're honoring culture. So yeah, you can be a traditional practitioner as long as nobody's paying you. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're not calling yourself what you are. So that's just like, you can totally live in the bush. You know, I mean, come on, even our, even our total sovereigntist Hawaiian cultural activist practitioners have to pay rent and need Mm -hmm. a cell phone. How are you going to be on call for births if you don't have a cell phone? Mm -hmm. You need to pay money for that cell phone. Yeah. You know, and we all have kids who need clothes and food. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just so oppressive. Yeah. But I just want to touch before we, I know we're going to have to wrap up eventually. And I just want, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the concept of safety, because I think it's just really important to like really break down the idea that what safety means to you or to one person or to a lot of people. Cause that's the other thing I keep coming up against in this conversation is that because uh, people like when people are part of the dominant culture, they feel like, well, most of us feel this way. Everyone I know thinks this way. So it doesn't really matter what the other thought processes are. And I'm just, I'm going to be that person again, who stands up and says, just because most people are on board with a certain concept, let's say, for example, what safety is, does not mean that some people, a very tiny minority of people, do not have the right to feel differently. We all have the right to feel the way we feel. And we all have the right to our own concept of what safety is to us and to follow that and to let that define our choices when it comes to a bodily thing like birth. So I just want to say like I used the I used African American or black women, contemporary women who are the descendants of enslaved people because I feel like it's such a good example of the fact that of course some people are not going to feel most safe in a medical environment and I have had Black American women tell me straight up, like, I chose to have a home birth because I was going to the doctor's office, and it was very clear to me that that was not a safe space for me or my child. And we have evidence that supports that. But I want to say that for me, I'm a white woman from America, but I also did not feel that the medical world was the safe place for me to have my child because safety doesn't mean technology that can keep me, you know, away from death. That's not what it means for me. Safety for me when I was having my children meant like privacy and it meant um, like being able to make my choices and not have them questioned and to be respected, you know, and to have people that I felt close to and safe with and not strangers around me. And one thing that safety meant for me was being in a specific spot on the earth 
I had chosen to bring my child to earth. And I know that people may listen to this and be like, well, she's a hippie. But you know, I was thinking about that idea. And I feel like hippie is the word that people use to talk about white people who basically operate like indigenous people. And so I've decided that I'm not going to be offended if someone calls me a hippie. That's fine. But the point is whether people agree or disagree or respect my choice, like I have the right to operate within that definition of safety. Yeah. To drive in the point of just really dismantling the notion that more technology equals better outcomes or more safety. Um, uh, the USA is a perfect example of that just not being true out of all the, you know, as they say, developed countries, we throw the most money at maternity care and we have the worst outcomes. So we got all the money going into it, but it's not proving to make anyone safer or healthier. Well, and back to that evidence thing that is supposedly so superior we have a system that does not that that's that boasts a lot of evidence oh da 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 but then not acting within those parameters you know like they thank you thank you that <laughs> is a really lot of protocol i didn't mean to cut you off pregnancy that have nothing to do with evidence based practices that's right. And when we were, um, so I guess I should say that I am the vice chair of the Hawaii State Home Birth Task Force. And one of the things that I learned while I was on that task force was that um, the Department of Health, the Hawaii State Department of Health is not receiving statistics from the hospitals. So, you know, we're all there's been this big outcry from basically hospital staff, right? Doctors, nurses, administrators, um, associations saying like, well, home birth isn't safe. And we know that because we have all these anecdotes. Well, anecdotes are not evidence. And um, when we came back and we met them with data, it turns out that they haven't been giving their data to the Department of Health any more than we have. And when we did produce our data, it proved that the evidence is that home birth in Hawaii with our very, very diverse group of midwives, because all these statistics were pulled from before licensure, mm -hmm. that it was actually as safe, if not safer, to choose a community-based birth. Right. And yet we have a law that outlaws two thirds of the practicing midwives who, who gave those statistics and they were cross-referenced with um, birth certificate records and, um, and what the midwives submitted versus what Department of Health had on record. And they were very, very close in numbers. So we know that that nobody's skewing it. Like midwives aren't trying to make themselves look better and Department of Health isn't trying to make hospitals look better, that the statistics are almost congruent with what was served on both sides. Right. So um, I'm curious what you guys see as um, possible solutions or hopeful pictures for going forward. 
this podcast and talking about it and getting it out there <laughs> to more people's ears to be more uh, aware of and and be curious about these conversations and that this isn't just for people that are gonna have a baby like you cannot want to have a baby and care about your fellow humans rights to their personal autonomy and sovereignty um, rights just like basic human rights um, so, so this is part of my solution is publicly mm-hmm. having these conversations um, and not just keeping them in the shadows. Uh, just, yeah, shining more light on it. But, uh, that's a starting point. <laughs> yeah, and I think we just have to keep trying to push, you know, the, the end um, on, on our end, <clears throat> I guess, of the diversity window of, you know, that diversity matters and works and, um, and is actually very, very crucial. Um, so, so forcing people through um, one train of thought, one type of schooling, one sort of practice is actually, um, you know, educating people that that actually is not safer, that is actually mm-hmm. less safe for the community at large and for long-term because the more and more and more you limit the, the, the less and less safe it actually becomes. And I mean, I think it was Sister Morningstar who was saying, you know, like we are at a critical point where we are birthing in captivity. We have people who, who rely on the medical system to become pregnant. We are losing, you know, we are an endangered species almost, which, you know, and maybe that's the whole angle of trying to play God in the medical world. But I think that, that we need to look at a bigger picture, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. why, why are we here? Why are we here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, education's a big one. And I'd like to take a moment to harp on something you guys have been bringing up that I, I wish more people would get when it comes to this homogenizing of midwives, of mainstreaming and professionalization of midwives um, that ends up criminalizing, devaluing, right, outlawing any other type of midwife. Um, and it's on a global scale. We have ICM yeah. now where we have, their, it's, it's global. Exactly, exactly. This is why I'm so grateful for you guys taking the time to speak to this issue here today and pour your hearts out here. And then so like my, my fire is being ignited even more. So thank you. Because here's the thing with um, the, the midwives and what I want people to see more is how this is continuing the colonization here in Hawaii, you know, this conversation of the colonizers and the ripple effects of that is still very prevalent. So I want people to integrate this into that conversation because sometimes it's left out. Mandatory midwifery licensure that is based on the CPM standard is continuing to eradicate indigenous culture it is continuing to devalue it just like the colonizers came in the beginning and they outlawed outlawed the hawaiian language and the the hula and the honoring of their gods all that and which also meant you know they couldn't practice their midwifery ways it is still happening right now there's a lot of reclaiming and reconstructing right but the Mm -hmm. cultural hegemony is still happening, right? Where mm-hmm. there's the domination of a culturally diverse society by the ruling class, and it's manipulating the culture of our society. So 
And if I can, can I, I would like to say one last thing. Do it. Which is that I am really astounded as I move through the world every day, how many people are totally like comfortable going around every day, telling other people what they should do and how they should make their decisions and what they should decide. Mm. And, you know, I spend time thinking about this because every day I see people doing this Mm. and it's super uncomfortable for me. And I, I've reflected on it and it's like in my family, especially on my dad's side, which is my Jewish side, there was a very strong sort of family um, culture of like, far be it from me to tell anyone else what to do. You know, my grandma who died last year, a month before her hundredth birthday, mm. used to always share that message with me on a regular basis and always with everyone well, you're going to do what you're going to do. So I'm not going to waste my time telling you what to do. You're going to make your choices and I'm going to make mine. And I feel like, I guess I was just raised that way. Like I have no interest in telling someone else how to make their decisions or what they should decide to do, especially with like the very large profound choices like giving birth or things around death or things around, you know, just important spiritual life choices. And I really just want to encourage everyone who hears this to check themselves. Are you going around telling other people what they should do and how they should make their decisions? And why are you doing that? And do you really feel justified in that? And if you do, why? I bet you it's because you're privileged and you're from the white Western dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And that means you're a colonizer. Mm -hmm. Yep. Check yourselves. I check myself. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah. When you don't recognize something beyond yourself, then that's exactly it. And you, and the reality is that you don't even have to understand. It's not your job to understand Amen. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) It is your job to just honor the person in front of you. To be understanding. You don't have to make the same choices. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, you don't have to understand. And if you want to, you can approach it with curiosity and try to understand. But the fact that you don't understand is not a good enough reason for you to tell someone else they shouldn't be making the choice they're making. Mm-hmm. or to eliminate their choices or to make their choices illegal. Exactly. Ah, yep. Full circle right there. That's what it's all about. Autonomy, personal sovereignty to each their own. That's it. Yep. All right. Well, thank you both so very much for sharing this morning adventure with me and uh, all podcast. our listeners. Oh yeah. This one was fire. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, guys. It was really fun to talk to you about this and love you guys. Love you too. And if you have more to share, you're always welcome back.